0: Going beyond the headlines, getting to the heart of the story. Calgary Today with Joe McFarland on 770 CHQR.
1: We've had a few weeks now with new changes, new rules when it comes to Alberta's Employment Standards Code. Some of them straightforward, some of them a little confusing. And I wanted to bring on Tom Ross. He is partner and labor and employment lawyer with McLennan Ross. Joins us today. Hello, Tom.
0: Hello,
1: Angela. Thanks for joining us because ever since we, well, the new year, we've had a lot of different reports on the changes to the labor laws and what it imp- how impacts employers and employees. And so finally I said let's just sort of break it down so my listeners have a chance to get it, through to them as well and I've had a few questions as well so hopefully we can go through some of these changes this half hour Tom I've been reading though the employment standards code it hasn't been updated since 1988 so this is the most significant update since that time is that correct
0: yes that is correct I mean it has been updated in terms of some of the regulations and some minor aspects, but this was a major overhaul to this legislation and, then, and some of our other labor legislation at the same time.
1: All right, because I was thinking 20 years, but thank you. There's been some tweaking at least because I can't imagine it being the way it is since 1988. One of the ones that has stood out, and I want you to clarify it, is this whole idea of stat holiday pay. What are the new rules when it comes to stat holiday pay for employees and employers?
0: Yeah, you're right. That is one of the biggest changes. And, and, and to be clear, most of my work is advising employers, and we've had lots of questions from employers because uh, the, the, the changes create a lot of additional costs that have not been certainly well publicized so far. And, and so let me just run you through some of the aspects of it. So we, we have, you know, Christmas Day and Family Day and Canada Day. These uh, statutory holidays that are, are protected, nine of them. Those are still the case but the rules as to how much you get paid and how they work are are quite different now and and so uh, the first change was that you would have to be employed for 30 days with a new employer before you would qualify for holiday pay that no longer applies any new employee they could start the day before Canada Day and they would be entitled to to holiday pay the next day okay the next change which is probably the the most difficult for people to understand the sense of it is it used to be that if the holiday fell on a day that you don't work would never work and weren't asked to work. For instance, most holidays fall on a Monday. Let's say you you work a schedule where you would never work a Monday or maybe you're a casual employee and you rarely work uh, Mondays uh, or or frankly any days at all. Now you will be entitled to holiday pay even though you're already going to get the day off you would ordinarily get the day off. You're not going to be called in to work. Uh, so it, it's hard for at least many employers to understand why should I be paying holiday pay for a day that they have off work and is not a normal day that is scheduled to work. So that, that's a big additional cost for, for many employers that uh, that is troubling. And then the third big change in respect to holiday pay is just the method of calculating holiday pay. And, and holiday pay used to be be based on, your average daily wage so what would you ordinarily earn in a day and it used to be calculated over a nine week period the nine weeks prior to the holiday the new calculation is now based over four weeks no big deal about that and it's five percent of your wages within those four weeks but it's also five percent of any holiday pay or vacation pay that you also earn in that four weeks so there's a an incremental increased cost most employers from that standpoint as well
1: then let's go back to this when my operation is closed on a Monday and a lot of holidays fall on the Monday at this before these changes that employee got the day off now that employee gets the day off and gets holiday pay which would be what their normal daily rate, or would it be time and a half how much would that show up on their check
0: it would be essentially the normal daily rate. It would be that calculation that I just gave you five percent right. of their earnings in the amount uh, of their five percent of their wages, holiday pay, and vacation pay in the four weeks prior to the holiday.
1: Okay, that is a bit of a head scratcher only because you say, especially for operations that they are closed on Monday, no one would work on that day, but they are still having to pay employees for that holiday.
0: yeah, and also, just to be clear, if you do work on the holiday, that treatment is still the same as it was in 2017, which is you'll get your normal uh, day's wage that you would get for that day, and you'll get time and a half for the hours that you do work on that day, or you'll get a, a, essentially a substitute holiday, another day in lieu in the future. That that part is still the same. So it's, it's not like anyone's giving things up. If they end up working the day, it's the, the situation where you would never work that day, and now you're going to get... Uh, pay for a day that was always a day off anyway
1: tom do you know how it works in other provinces i had the premier on last week and she kept talking about well we're just coming into line or in step with other provinces and what their labor laws are like
0: well i mean there are obviously 10 provinces with 10 different pieces of legislation and 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 it's it's true that some aspects of these changes are reflected in other provinces but that that in my mind, is not really the, the test. Uh, the, the test should be what makes, what makes sense for, uh, the, you know, the employment workplace that we want in, in Alberta.
1: Yeah, and a lot of my listeners would agree with you. Hold on here, Tom. I've got a few more questions, especially coming to banking overtime and, um, um, well, overtime in general. Let's check our drive home. It's 338. Trying to break down some of the changes that went into effect January 1st here in Alberta with the Employment Standards Code. Helping me to do it as Tom Ross, partner and labor and employment lawyer with McLennan Ross. And as Tom pointed out at the beginning of the conversation, works mainly your clients are employers who are trying to sort through all the changes as well. Correct, Tom? Correct. Now, also to be clear, this is for employees Outside of, what, unions or federally regulated industries? I'm just trying to be clear with where these changes are going to impact what workforce.
0: It is for employers and employees who are regulated uh, under provincial law as opposed to federally regulated industries like banks or airlines. It it is both for union and non-union employees. The Employment Standards Code really sets the base minimum standard of Uh, terms and conditions of employment in Alberta and you can always negotiate more as an individual employee, you can always negotiate more as as a union, but you cannot negotiate terms that are less than these minimum standards.
1: All right, let's get to uh, overtime because I want to try to understand some of the changes when it comes to overtime. Do you want to roll it out for us, Tom, before I start asking specific questions?
0: Sure. Well, you had mentioned before one issue about banking overtime. So it used to be when you work overtime, the minimum requirement is you would either get paid at time and a half for the hours that you've worked that are overtime, and that's generally more than eight hours in a day or more than 44 hours in a week or whichever is the greater of those two. So you can either pay time and a half or it used to be that you could take banked time and lose. Some people would rather have time off than extra pay, so they'd they'd say, well, look, I'll work uh, overtime today or this week if you give me uh, time in lieu uh, sometime down the road, and it used to be that you could do that essentially on an hour-for-hour basis, so if you worked, let's say, a Saturday that was an overtime day, you might take, you know, a day off the next week or the next month or something like that, the the change now is that instead of taking hour-for-hour off in lieu, you will take an hour and a half for each hour. So if you worked eight hours overtime, you would have to be given 12 hours of time off in the future. And and many people might say, hey, well, that's, that's a great thing. What's the problem with that? And like many of these changes, uh, you know, one has to ask, well, what is going to be the impact, the consequence in terms of how employers actually manage themselves? And it certainly seems to me that most employers, and I've, I've certainly had – many employers who used to bank overtime and allow for that they now say well look I, I, it's no different than just paying time and a half i might as well pay the time and a half and not allow any banked overtime so we're not going to bank overtime in the future we'll just pay it out hmm. that, so that's one one change in particular inspect in respect to overtime that the basic rules as i mentioned over eight or over 44 in a week those are still the same but the other big change in respect to overtime is in respect to what's called a compressed work week, or at least what used to be called a compressed work week, which is simply a schedule where you work more hours in a day in exchange for fewer days in the week. So, for instance, four 10-hour days instead of five 8-hour days are treated the same. Uh, you know, There's no overtime even though you're working more than 10 hours in a day. And it used to be if you set up a valid compressed work week agreement, uh, you could just Uh, carry on, and uh, there wouldn't be overtime, and and you're fine. And the the new rule is that you have to now have what's called an averaging agreement, which is a specific written agreement that sets out the schedule and has, you know, a a number of uh, specific requirements and restrictions in respect to it. Uh, Overall, the, the, the outcome will be similar, but there's a lot more red tape, certainly for employers and, frankly, for employees, too, to to go through to have a valid averaging agreement.
1: Because if that person, and we had a call last week from someone who's in construction, and they were saying, now all of a sudden we used to be able to make a little bit of extra money, work a little longer, and now the contractor's saying, no, i got to make sure you're just working eight-hour days. So that construction worker was a little miffed with the changes. But this, when you talk about the compressed week then, if they're working four tens, they now will they have to the employer will they have to pay overtime once you go beyond that eight hours
0: no you can still have the same valid schedule it's just that there are a, a, a lot more hoops that you have to go through i should also mention that an existing compressed work week uh, uh, arrangement that has been in place prior to 2018 there's a grace period of one year before you have to put in place these these averaging mm. agreements but but anyone coming on to a new Essentially, compressed work week arrangement would have to have this. And, and so where you may have a problem is if for some reason someone doesn't properly uh, you know, set up that agreement, doesn't comply with all of the regulations in respect to those agreements, they may, in fact, have uh, a new overtime obligation, even though they're really doing the same as what they, they always have done.
1: I think, Tom, you just answered the question someone just had. Um, can you ask your guest about a flexible averaging agreement and how that relates to work days over eight hours? So I think that's exactly what you're talking about then. You've got to make sure you've got that agreement in place, and it's just uh, a lot more red tape to go through.
0: It is. I, I, I don't want to bog it down because there, there's some specifics. A flexible averaging agreement is actually a little bit different oh. than an averaging <laughs> agreement. It, it essentially allows for... Um, You know, a short amount of excess time worked in a day to be taken as what we call what we now call flex time, and it actually would be on an hour for hour basis. It it, similarly to an averaging agreement requires a specific written agreement that will be called a flexible averaging agreement, and and so it, it, it. again, allows for the same outcome to occur, but uh, a bunch more red tape to get there. Mm.
1: Uh, Someone here says, what happened to the 172 hours per month overtime agreement? Do you know what he's asking, Tom?
0: He's likely asking about there there are certain regulations in respect to specific industries where they have different requirements. Uh, For instance, certain Uh, Oil and gas servicing companies uh, fall under a specific regulation that has overtime hours based on a monthly basis Hmm. rather than a daily or weekly basis. Uh, Those regulations, by and large, have not... Have not changed for those specific industries but those are fairly narrow exceptions compared to what applies for most people
1: now another question it sort of sounds like back to this flexible averaging agreement but it says are there any changes to individual overtime agreements so is that another term that's the same thing or is that something completely different
0: it is something different The, the overtime agreement is is that's not a new requirement that was a requirement under the old legislation as well and an overtime agreement just allows you to bank overtime. And so uh, I I covered off that the banking arrangement. Now you have to give an hour and a half of banked time for each hour of overtime worked. The the overtime agreement would still be the same um, other than that time and a half requirement. And also, I guess one, one positive change in respect to overtime agreements is that it used to be, unless it was in a unionized environment, you would have to take the time in lieu within three months of working the overtime. That's now been doubled to six months, which allows frankly both employers and employees a bit more flexibility in taking the lieu time. Uh, As I said earlier though, you know, there's likely to be fewer people working uh, or getting banked time in in lieu of overtime. uh, So they can still do it with an overtime agreement, but uh, probably fewer will.
1: I like this text. I never understood why anyone would bank overtime. Give me my money and I'll save it for when I need it. I like to take the time only because I'd rather have the time and enjoy it than the government taking my tax dollars. But, you know, everyone has their own reasons, right, Tom? Here's another one. My husband is on a salary but has an overtime agreement of one for one. Is that still legal?
0: Well, uh, yes and no. It is legal in respect to hours that were banked prior to January 1. So you can continue to apply the old rules to use up what is in the bank on a one-for-one basis. But any overtime hours that are worked since January 1, 2018, they will have to be given at, at 1.5 hours for each overtime hour worked, or as I said, uh, they could just be paid out at time and a half.
1: Uh, Tom, I've got a a couple of calls here, and really, if you don't know the answer, you can always say you don't know the answer. Uh, Here, Bob, what's your question for Tom? Uh,
0: How does this new ruling apply to independent contractors and independent sole proprietors that work under contract for an employer? Well, that's a good question because many people operate uh, in that fashion. The the, the issue really becomes, Bob, a, a question of, while you've set up or someone has set up a, as a contractor, are they legally, would the law actually treat them as being contractors, independent contractors, or would the law treat them more uh, like employees? Because many contractor arrangements are really arrangements for for payroll purposes uh, without changing fundamentally the, the employment relationship that's in place. So if you have a contract relationship that is really in its essence, an employment relationship, then these rules will apply and change those terms, just like uh, I've been talking about how they will change for employees. If it truly is an independent contractor situation, then then uh, the Employment Standards Code doesn't apply at all, and you can, frankly, negotiate whatever whatever suits you. All right, now, Bob? Yeah, just a, a bit further on that. A sole proprietor uh, can have a contract, and they're totally independent, um, but they're not classed as a, an employee. They're classed as a, a small business, basically, even though they're not incorporated. And so would the same rule apply to them? Yeah, the same test would apply as to whether they are, you know, a sole proprietor is really just someone who is who is operating as a, a business or like a business, although they haven't incorporated. And if you have, just as an example, a, a sole proprietor who has lots of different clients or customers for the work that they do and they negotiate uh, separate terms in respect to each of them, You know, and, and, and they have a lot of control as to how they do their work and so forth, then they're likely to be a contractor and none of these provisions are going to apply. But if you have a sole proprietor, for instance, who works for one company only and does the same job as lots of other people at that company who are truly employees and paid as employees, and that sole proprietor has uh, his hours prescribed by the company he works for the same as everyone else, and has the work uh, directed and controlled the same as everyone else, even though you're calling it uh, a contract relationship, uh, if employment standards looked at it, they would they would likely consider that to be an employment relationship. Mm. All right. Thank
1: you very, very much. Uh, Tom, I don't know if you could respond to this one, but just someone said, I just got notified that the union voted to include the contractor faculty members, and now I have to pay 2% off my check. How did this happen without my vote? New labor laws as of January 1st allows them to do that. So angry. Is there anything we can do? Are you familiar with that at all? It sounds like someone who is part of a union and now has to pay an increase in their fees or something two percent off of their checks
0: yeah I think what that is referring to is changes when when the employment standards changes came in uh, although they have only become effective January 1 they were actually passed last June and they were passed in a piece of legislation that also amended the labor relations code those changes went into effect last year and the one that that this person is talking about is the provision that to have a union in the past the union would have to generate a certain amount of support, 40% of an employee group, in order to have a vote. And then it would be a secret ballot vote, just like any other election, and people could choose whether they wanted a union or not. Under the new rules, you you can still have a vote at 40% support. But if a union gets over 65%, then they can unionize the workplace without having any vote, mm-hmm. without testing the wishes of people who may have signed out with, uh, signed up without knowing what they sign up or, as in this example, the person didn't even know that anyone was signing up and they don't get any say whatsoever. And now all of a sudden they're, they're in a union without, uh, without, their,
1: say without so. their say. Tom, uh, thanks for covering as much as you could. I know it's complicated and I'm sure you're busy with your clients, but I really appreciate your input on this one. My pleasure. Tom Ross, partner, labor and employment lawyer with McLennan Ross.